0: Hello and welcome to Minto Dialogue, episode number 385. Today is Sunday the 23rd of August 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Kingsley Moyo. Kingsley is a pastor, coach in relationships, marriage educator and author of the book The R Factor, Position Yourself to Succeed in Any Relationship. In this podcast with Kingsley, you'll learn about how to strengthen your relationship with those close to you, work with millennials, how to approach relationships at work, as well as intercultural relations. You'll find all the show notes on mintodial.com. And please consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Kingsley Moyo, wow. So you and I, connected about podcasting and uh, you invited me on your show the relationship factor you have a site you're an author you're a speaker and you're a pastor my goodness Kingsley (laughs) you pack it in tell me in your own words who you are
1: wow Minta what do you want me to begin with that question (laughs) (laughs) who am I summed it up real well I'm, I'm a pastor I've dabbled up a little lo- dabbled up a little bit in a few career paths not that they define who I am I've been a mechanical engineer dropped that went back to school to be a pastor trained to be a pastor and uh, while journeying along as a pastor uh, I'm administering in my congregation and within the community I saw something that was missing and something I couldn't put my finger on as I was engaging in people. And that's something as I went through that path, I discovered that it was broken relationships, spouses, friends, family, coworkers. And that started me on on another journey while I was in another journey in digging into relationships. So I went back to school for that, did a diploma in that, and um, just finishing off my master's in marital and family therapy, still a pastor. So that kind of opened up this world of relationships, uh, author writing about relationships. Yeah, yeah, that's where the journey of relationship factor takes off. And that's really who I am. I, I, I just a guy who loves to help people build healthy relationships.
0: So I have to imagine that someone in your family says, Kingsley, you're an eternal student. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, you got that. I'll say the eternal perpetual student, <laughs> perpetual student. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> everything you just everything, about done. Yeah, you never say never. You never. Um, you, that's true, and you never stop uh, uh, learning, though, because while you think you're going to teach somebody, and you just go, oh, I learned something.
0: So you oh. were, You're based in
1: Canada. Uh, yes, I'm based in Canada, Alberta, Edmonton. Canada. Oh, in Alberta, sorry. So the yeah. province is Alberta, the city is Edmonton.
0: Edmonton, that's right. That's what I thought. And uh, how did you get there? Is that where you've always been? Tell us the story towards Edmonton. I know the Oilers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Go Oilers. <laughs> I was born in, in Zimbabwe, Southern Africa. And I came to Canada in 2001. So literally been Canada here for about 19 years. The first place I landed was Montreal. Don't ask me to speak in French. Uh, <laughs> I can only say, oui, je parle pas français, très bien. And well, that's just about it. And um, while being in Montreal, I discovered that uh, the language was a barrier in mm. exploring and, and, and doing more. And then I decided to move a little bit uh, west and that's why I landed in, in, in Edmonton, really following the school path. The oh, I see. Path, the school path. And here I am today. still.
0: Beautiful. I lived in Montreal, the Belleville, Montréal, for uh, over three years and had a marvelous experience. And I've been to Edmonton. I'm a hockey nut. So that's one of the ways that I roll. I like to check people. I'm not afraid to call my colors out. Most most Canadians won't like the fact that I support the Philadelphia Flyers, those bad boys. My goodness, you (laughs) set out. Indeed, Indeed. That's where my mother comes from. So relationships, you talk a lot about how your past relationships inform your current state of affairs. I'm going to dig in, Kingsley, and ask how your relationships informed your exploration of relationships and might even have been a, the sort of the kernel that it, that sort of opened up as you started exploring it. Do you have a story there?
1: I, I do. I do. And it's interesting you ask that question because I began to discover my story late in life. And I thought to myself, if I had discovered this story earlier in life, I could have grown much more, but it's okay. I discovered that I grew up in a a, a single family home, broken relationship, if you want to call it. And I had a marvelous mother. And my relationship with dad was up and down. It got restored when he just about passed away. So my parents lived together, they got separated, divorced. And that was a gap of about five, six years. And then after those five, six years as I was growing up as a young man, my relationship with my dad began to be restored. And when he passed away, we were restored. Okay, fair and fine. Fast forward into life. And I'm going into this journey now. I'm in my early 30s. And I'm beginning to see other people up and things about relationships happening. And I'm not even paying attention to myself. Mm. I could pick up on things about what's happening with other people. And I could puzzle i could piece the puzzle pieces together oh that's because of that or oh, they're acting this way because they're really not angry at me it's their relationship with their mother it's playing out at church or with friends i see how that guy is dating that girl it seems like it's the relationship that played out at home or what they watched from their mom and dad and at this time i wasn't even paying attention to myself sure and and then i picked up this book on uh Emotional maturity, I forget the author of that book is, and that just opened up a whole can of worms. Emotional maturity, being able to handle your emotions. And one statement that caught me in that book was that no one is responsible for anybody else's happiness. It's a decision for me to be happy. You can say something right now to me, just curse me out or whatever you want to say to me. I have a choice to say, to be mad or to be upset, or I have a choice to say, Minta is crazy. That's, that's what he thinks. That's his problem. That's his problem. And I, I, I move on. And after reading that book, I began to look at how I grew up with my family. I was anxious. Uh, what's going to happen next? What's going to be my relationship with my dad going to be like my, uncles um, I was always anxious and as I grew up with my friends with my friends I was always anxious are my friends gonna stay in my life are they gonna go keep friendships when I started dating I was anxious how is it gonna play out okay when they don't text me or when they don't call me does that mean that they don't like me anymore are they gonna disappear or is it gonna break up and as I was going through my life and because I was I grew up in a single family home it was important for me for my mom to be proud of me. So my mom's affirmation was very crucial, important in school, choices that I made. And as I went on and on in life, that grew on me. It built an identity. It shaped the way I show up in relationships, even much more so to the first year of my marriage. While I was married, I was with somebody. I was still looking for my mom's affirmation. Mm -hmm. And when I read that book and it clicked, no, you're with somebody. She is number one now. She is the person to go to, a a switch got flipped. My relationship just changed.
0: Mm. Wow, what was that moment like? So you are married, you also are a father what happened when you put the book down and you just had a, what was it? When you, you were eureka moment. A, eureka moment, the bathtub overflowed, you jump out and darling, check this out.
1: See, I didn't do that because I didn't want to confess it real quick. She said, ah, she was always saying it. No. Your mom is number one. No, you yeah, always right. put your mom. Of course not. You were number one, baby. Yeah. You're number one. At that time we didn't have kids yet. It was just the first year of marriage. Sure. we have been married eight plus years. And, and I, I, did, I realized it, but I couldn't go ahead and just confess it right away. I was waiting for a time whereby she had done something, and then I could squeeze in my of kind of ego. But eventually, I told her, she was like, I knew that, but I didn't connect it. I didn't connect the pieces the way you were doing now. So it was an eye-opener. And... That was actually the beginning journey. And at that time, a relationship factor didn't exist. And at that time I didn't have any official schooling in counseling. I didn't have any of those things. I hadn't had any counseling session. Like right now, I've done many premarital, marriage, dating. I hadn't done any of those. It was just like discovering myself, who I am, how I show up in relationships. That moment, Minta, was eye-opening. It just changed things.
0: I love it. So in that, it it certainly was beneficial to your wife and, and it has informed your relationship with her, the past, the awareness of it. Where I have a relationship with that thought is, I also wrote a book on empathy. And then, and I share it with my wife, of course, and we talk about empathy and the challenges of being empathic with people who are very close to you, and then every once in a while, I get called out for not being so empathic. That wasn't very empathic. you, the expert on empathy meant it: uh-huh. <laughs> So you, got, you are now like the relationship god, excuse me for you invoking uh, God, the guru of relationships. oh that, that really there must be times when you're not the perfect relationshiper that. That's natural but is that something you had to
1: have to carry around as well it's it's always interesting i can walk out of my house and deal with uh, a whole lot of couples and after conversations or after a week or two even after a counseling session thank you so much kingsley if it's in the community thank you so much pastor if it's in the church or it's in a, it's a phone call thank you so much i hadn't think hadn't thought of it that way we are doing better and applying that same knowledge to my own relationships i'm hard-headed it's i don't know what it is i'm good at doing it for other people but for my own i know what the mistakes are i can pick on my mistakes i can pick on my wife's mistakes and we've gotten on this journey together we know each other we can identify each other and we know the solutions question is in applying those solutions And I find that sometimes maybe it's because we're just too hard on ourselves.
0: It's like always having to be clean. Yes. So you're cleaning, let's quote unquote, bringing cleansing to other people's relationship. But if you're not allowed to have dirt in your fingernails and on your knees, what is life if it's not a couple of arguments? Right. I mean, how important is an argument in a relationship? How, How do you view, discuss advise around arguments
1: i think uh, we call it an argument is a must to to for in any relationship if you are not having any conflict in any relationship well something maybe you're not in a relationship <laughs> because conflict is inevitable it's not whether will it come if it's when it comes And when it comes, how are you going to deal with it? And what I found beneficial in my relationship with the people, like with my brothers or my wife, those that are close with me that know that I do this stuff, it's the after conversation. It's the conversation after the conflict that's more important. Because at that time when the conflict is happening, all that book knowledge, all that experience tends to go out the window. It doesn't exist anymore. When I'm having a couple sit in front of me, or an individual who's talking about their relationships, the book or the experience kicks in. But when it's me, that goes out of the window. So I know that my relations with people around me know that, but it's the after after conversation that's crucial when we reflect, hey, that happened this way, that happened this way. And from there, you grow. If you don't have conflict, you're not growing because conflict checks certain presuppositions or certain belief systems that you have had. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's time for you to evaluate maybe it's time for you to consider this and one important thing about conflict that has actually helped me is conflict has two sides let's say you and i have a conflict and let's say you started the conflict because i'm a good guy i can't naturally (laughs)
2: let's
1: say you started the conflict and let's just tag a number Uh, let's just say you are 70 percent responsible for the conflict and because i responded in a harsh manner however way i responded I, I have thirty percent of the conflict. I'm I have that I have a contribution because it's two sided. One principle that I've used is that I am a hundred percent responsible for the thirty percent. You are hundred percent responsible for the seventy percent. So if I'm hundred percent responsible for what I did in the conflict, guess who's a hundred percent responsible for reconciliation? It's me and you. So I don't have to wait for you to say, oh, Minter, Minter's got a hard head. And uh, if he wants to build a relationship with me, he needs to figure his stuff out and come and apologize. No, we both show up. We both seek forgiveness. We both ask for forgiveness. We both forgive. And that has transformed the way I do relationships and conflict in my relationship.
0: But Kingsley, it's always me who has to start. Sorry. You know, I listen, I'm, I I, I'm a hundred percent. Listen, I'm coming to you with my olive branch and it's always me. Why don't you? And that also
1: layers into that. that. That's right. And that's where relationships face a challenge because everybody tends to think that it's the other. It's not me. It's you. And mm. no resolution is sought because of, of that because we're waiting for the other person. Imagine, relationships friendships people that have been in friends for 20 years small argument breaks up and the other person is blaming the other i know we've shared in our podcast that you've married a quarter century imagine Year number 25, Minta, by the way, Minta is the one who always starts the problem. <laughs> so Minted starts a problem uh, with his wife. and uh, 100%, 70%. <laughs> and the relationship breaks up. And sometimes it's kind of sad to hear that irreconcilable differences. And I'm, I'm not talking about abuse and, and all this stuff. And, but sometimes if we really look at it, it's not owning up a hundred percent for my 5% or my 2%. Mm. It could have been that owning up for that 2% that could have just transformed the relationship
2: Mm.
1: because I want it and I value it.
0: In in 70-30, there is an attribution. You started it. You are more vulgar. The thought in my mind is this notion of balance. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And so in a relationship... Is there such a thing as balance? Hotheads, balancing, cool ice on the other side. Does that work? Someone from the north, someone from the south, do,
1: do they balance each other out? Somebody talking bad about oilers. And before I get into the balance, I think um, there is a conversation before we get into the balance. And I think that's a crucial conversation in any relationship. It's the self-talk. So right now, you and I are having a conversation. There's probably about um, four conversations that are happening. Mm-hmm. There's a conversation that's happening in my head. I'm looking at you uh right now, and of course we're having the video. Uh, I'm talking in my head, mentor, this wise guy, he just imparted wisdom with me earlier on, and now he has me on his podcast um his yellow she's pink shirt. And there's a lot of conversation. He's a white guy and all this stuff. And there's a conversation that's happening in my mind. And this conversation is governed by belief systems. And these belief systems, my gender, my race, my culture, you name it. So that's one conversation that's happening. You're doing the same thing. You're looking at me. Kingsley, this young guy, man, this young chap, uh, I wonder where he's going in life. And you're picking up all these things. And by the way, this self-talk conversation is not something that we hear. So there's those two conversations. And then there's the conversation that our listeners are hearing, the exchange. And sometimes this exchange is not the full conversation that's happening in my head. Sure. So when you're talking about balance, when we tend to think of balance, we're looking at the conversation that's happening between you and I. And sometimes more often when we do balance, we're not being real. We're just trying to keep the equilibrium, just Mm -hmm. to keep the status quo. And that can only last for a certain while, up until my belief system gets challenged.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Then I give up, then I throw in the towel, and then the real me comes in, the real me, the short, Black, Afro-Canadian relationship guy kicks in and the balance gets thrown off. So before we even have the conversation about balance, I think we need to have a conversation about what are your belief systems? What are my belief systems? When I understand that, then I know how to relate with you genuinely. I'm not just keeping the status quo just to maintain equilibrium you know how we have those politically correct words we don't even believe them but we just want to be right politicians do you've been an example. unfortunately in
0: society we do and so I yeah think, yeah <laughs> we, we're not allowed to say closer to what we're thinking in the back mm-hmm. the back peddling, the back stories that we have in our brains
1: yeah yeah and those social constructs inform the way we show up and the way we do and i know you wrote a book on on empathy, empathy really is checking your belief systems. What do I believe about? I'm a pastor. I might be having a conversation with you, not necessarily you, 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 you're not a religious guy, or you might be spiritual. And I have certain belief systems. You have certain belief systems. So if I'm checking with my belief system and understanding your belief systems, I'm really tapping into empathy. I know I don't understand and I'm good with not understanding, but I'm here for you. Mm. That's being genuine. That's checking my belief system. That's empathy. And I like the fact that you take it into the workplace because in the workplace, that's where a whole lot of political correctness happens. In fact, when people have better relationships, productivity increases. I've seen that in relationship with intimacy, where people, husband, wife, dating, they do much more when the relationship thrives. I've seen that I work with young adults. My passion or area is millennials. I've seen that when millennials have relationships that are functioning and they're doing well, the productivity increases. I dare say when you think about it, employ, apply it in it in your dealing with companies and all that, if they were to go back and do managerial or planning from a relational standpoint, productivity will increase.
0: Oh, and I so agree. Where that goes is this merging and overlapping of what's personal and professional. Yes. And I would argue that the political correctness, of course, it's in our society in general, but I, I, I actually believe it's an entropic element because it's essentially whitewashing
2: Mm
1: -hmm.
0: a lot of our thoughts, codifying and eliminating roughness. And and that roughness, while sometimes, of course, out of place and undesirable, means that we're just rendering it superficial. And it's all a little bit silicon-like. Artificial, really. And so the, the countenancing personal opinions, leaning in on emotions at work, really, therefore, the construct of a relationship where you trust one another, you know that I can say something, and because you, we've built up a relationship, you understand that my intention behind a word that uh, out of context could be considered poor.
2: Mm. But
0: because you believe in my intention, let's say you have that belief system, <laughs> because you need to have that there. That's constructed over... And you've acquired that over time. You and I have spoken a number of times, you now believe that's it's possible that my intention was good, even though it didn't sound so hot. So the political correctness area can be countered by understanding intention.
1: Yes. It's, it's sometimes the political correctness is, is a protective mechanism. It's hard being vulnerable it's a difficult thing being vulnerable because if i'm vulnerable you'll see the bare bones of who i am you'll see that i hope i woke up at home i'm not talking with my teenage daughter you'll see that i don't agree with how you're doing life you will see that layer is you are referring to that layer you'll see all of these things so we default into this this political correctedness and We could benefit much more. So sometimes there's this idea, if you're vulnerable, you're weak. Mm. And sometimes we we tend to call our female counterparts weak because they tend to express emotion. But if only men discover that's where the power lies. That's really where the power lies, being vulnerable and being able to express and communicate your emotion. As men, we have to put on this persona, I got it all made. And... I have it all figured out and everybody needs to know that I have it all figured out. And if I am vulnerable, then I'm weak. Then I cannot be a manager. Then I cannot take care of my affairs. Then I won't be tapped on the shoulder that you are next in line. So there is this whole mix that we have to contend with. And along the way in everything that we do, everybody attaches meaning to whatever we're doing. So the way you're looking at me right now, I mean, no, we're recording the audio. Our listeners might not be uh, uh, seeing this. The way you're looking at me, I'm attaching meaning. Okay, it means that we're getting along. Sure. Or you're looking at maybe the back of, of, of my room. Oh, what's that picture? And I'm looking at the back of a picture. I'm attaching meaning. So he must be this kind of guy. Right. And even when we communicate, of course, uh, you could say a statement because I don't know your belief system. I'm constantly attaching meanings. We see that play out in workplaces. You misunderstood me. We see that play out in friendships. You misunderstood me. We see that play out in relationships. It's the reflection. So what I'm hearing you say is that simply clarifies a whole lot of things, Minter. Yeah, exactly. It certainly <laughs> does.
0: When uh, what, what makes me you're thinking makes me think about is vulnerability, and the mistake that I definitely came in with to this idea was that if I show vulnerability once, that makes me forever vulnerable. And it's an odd thought. Let's say I were to cry now. Amongst children, we might label me a crybaby. If I, of course, I did it multiple times. the, the fact is that notion—the moment of crying—is related to a moment, and that the next moment I might be a an all-black uh, rugby player um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and and showing great uh, courage in a different form, which is. Depleted or has no, you know, level of crying. I have the bravado, the capability, and yet, why can't we allow for both to exist without being carried with that moniker of being a crybaby?
1: There's two things that are happening. Uh, number one, we tend to take snapshots of life and take them to mean that's how our whole life is or is going to look like. So, if I'm crying. It's like what we do in social media. If somebody takes a selfie and they're smiling, they're looking good. Oh, he's tend perfect, to say right. Yeah, exactly, it's perfect. And then you hear a sad suicide story after that. It's like, what? I can't believe that, but I thought that she or he was happy. So we tend to take snapshots of life and then we use that to to mean that that's how our life is like. But life is like a story unfolding in time. So one point in your story does not have to define everything. In fact, you and I have the power to edit our story. If I don't like something, I have the option of going in there and editing it. If the story is going north, I have the option of turning the story to go east or west or south. So that's one point peace that's happening there, what we're doing with vulnerability, if I cry today, I'm going to be taken as a crybaby. If I uh, show weakness in one of my executive meetings, if it's a chairman, I cry about something that I'm passionate about, I might be perceived as weak. So we're taking a snapshot to define who we are, but no, we're not defined by one thing in our life. Our life is a story. If people took time to understand our story, if we took time to be vulnerable, to share our story, they would see the power... And, and the successes that I've had in life. That's one. The second one is, you know, I'm passionate about relationships and how they shape your identity. Mm-hmm. When you were growing up uh, as a young boy, boys don't cry, be strong. Sure,
0: especially, especially on the <laughs> rugby field.
1: <laughs> there you go. And I used to play rugby when I was in high school. Be strong, boys don't cry. And uh, yeah, yeah, so it's ingrained in us and, and parents don't, realize that and sometimes we're taught that easily simple thing like vegetables if you eat your vegetables I'm going to be proud of you or in ingraining in a child that performance is what's going to make people love you and this is a person whom you value who has the most meaning They're telling you that your performance is what's acceptable for me to give you love. So it's like a transaction of an exchange. So when you grow up, you have these all these set of belief systems that you have. If I show weakness, so this point in time has to be correct, has to be on point in order for me to be understood and acceptable in all other areas of my life. So when you show up in a meeting... You can't be crying, you're an executive man. <laughs> That's it.
0: I, I certainly remember, I, I, I tend to remember all the times I feel like I fucked up, I didn't do well. Mm. And I gloss over those other moments. I said I tend to bear down on the critical elements. So I want to get back to this notion of balance. And, and the, the zone that I wanted to get into, is there such a thing as balance in love? balance
1: in love. You got to tell me more on that. Minute. Right, what, so, what do you mean balance in love? So give me more, give me more.
0: Let's say you or t- two people, a man and a woman, they are married or in love with one another. Is there such a thing as equally in love with one another? Is that something to aim for? Is that possible is or undesirable?
1: I think if you put it that way, you're setting yourself up for failure or for disappointment. Number 1 there's about what 7 billion people on earth plus no two people are alike there is no way that two people can think and approach things the same secondly we have different relationship styles some people are anxious some people are avoidant some people are secure some people are disorganized and that's just how they show up love languages Some people's love languages is gifts. Some people love languages is touch. Some people's love languages is affirmation. If you show up in a relationship expecting a 50-50 approach, you will set yourself up for disappointment because you will say, I've done this far, therefore you have to come this far. And you're measuring you're this far. So you're measuring his or her this far based on your belief system, based on your love language, based on your relationship style, based on your how you form relationship as a child. So that causes a whole lot of problems. But if we go back to that principle that I shared earlier on for conflict, you're hundred percent responsible for two percent. Right, mm-hmm. So if they're taking if they're coming in hundred percent with their twenty percent, that changes the, their approach if they, some men or women are not good at cooking, but if they go into the kitchen and just fry an egg and they make a lousy meal, they're giving the 100%, even if it's 20% for you. So work with that. For me, that would be balance Mm -hmm. and equilibrium. If you go 50-50, you run into problems. It's like when we get into marriage, we would say, I hear this and couples doing that and 50% of the bills are mine, 50% of the bills are yours. But when you get into marriage, his debts, I don't know about the law, if you're landing over there, his debts are your debts. My debts, like everything that I own is yours. And even when debtors are coming to collect, they're saying, oh, you're married, you want. So we are coming after you as well. That's what we do in in corporations and all that stuff. So it's difficult to come into a a relationship with 50-50 because you are Attaching a meaning to what they are doing based on your belief system. And that's not fair.
0: That certainly gets into the sticky wicket of prenuptials and you coming in with money before. I would say the more zestier space, and I do want one other area to talk about, which is millennials, but the zestier space are friends or family. Oh, that's your father. That's the way he is. (laughs) Or he's your friend. He's that college stupid uh, fat boy oh, he's your friend.
1: Mm.
0: And and, uh, this notion of dependence and independence, and and to what extent those other factors play into relationships, because you can't just extract yourself from the other relationships that surround you.
1: You can't extract yourself uh, from the other relationships. But one crucial thing to understand is that the way you show up in an intimate relationship, the way you show up in a relationship with your friends, the way you show up in a relationship with your family is the same. It's governed by the same principles. So you can't really separate all of those things. So Going back, um, I'm just going to pull up something that I said earlier so that I don't introduce anything new. If you are anxious in how you show up in relationships, your friends. If your friend uh, seems to be hanging out with other people, you're going to be anxious. Does that mean it's the end of our friendship? If your wife goes on a vacation or a trip with the girls or your husband goes on a trip with the boys and they don't text a call when they promise to text a call, what are they up to? You're anxious in your family of origin as well. So there's a principle that carries along on how you show up in the relationship. So I think that's crucial to understand that we carry all these principles in there.
0: hmm that makes total sense. One, one of the others I wanted to get into before the millennials is the, the notion of, of culture. And so I married a, a French-Spanish lady and a very different background in every level. I suppose it's almost like religion at some level, but these intercultural elements, I, I would imagine, believe, make it harder to connect, at least at the beginning, because we do come from different belief systems, different. we have different baggage that it could be different language, makes it even harder to really connect on. How do you approach those types of issues. And one thing I wanted to reflect on, Kingsley, was that the, the, while you obviously have um, a strong understanding through your own personal experiences, it's very clear that you seem to have a really good grasp of the concepts and vocabulary so that your, your academic training has brought to you some constructs that I certainly haven't come. I really appreciate listening to this idea of the love language, for example. It's a new thing for me. I feel like I intuitively understood it, but you've made it much clearer for me. So what about these? this notion of different cultures and how do you manage? Is it, we're, we're, just talk us through at least maybe what the first thoughts that come to your mind in managing intercultural relations.
1: I think intercultural relationships are beautiful. I, for one, am, am a proponent of that. But if you do decide to get into an intercultural relationship, you also must be willing to learn and to let go of some of things that you have known about yourself and how you show up in relationships. And with that being said, for example, if just pull out an, an example, if somebody from Asia marries somebody from from Africa, how we show up in relationships or how we relate to family. Maybe let me just put somebody from the Western world, somebody from Asia and somebody from the Western world. Um, Not all the time, typically in the Western world, the idea, the definition of family is different from the definition what an Asian person would consider. Family in an Asian context would be your cousins, your uncles, your brothers. Certainly that's the notion that I would be coming from an African individual. So if I... If you if those two people come together and they are in a relationship, there needs to be an understanding that we will need to let go of certain things. We will need to embrace certain new things. And that only challenges you to grow. Because now you are in love, you want to discover more about the other person, it causes you to reflect on why you do what you do. It causes you to Think through your belief systems. Hey, why am I even doing this? Does that even make sense? Sometimes when you're growing up as a little kid, they'll always tell you, don't do that. Why? Because I say so. So as adults and you're in a relationship, you're doing relationship because somebody said so or you saw somebody do so. But if you get somebody who comes from a different culture, that idea of because it has been done so doesn't make sense. (laughs) You got to come up with a good reason. It makes you check and question your belief system. And in the process, you grow, you enjoy more. It would be unfair to get married and be like, your culture is weird. Mm-hmm. Are you telling me that we need to include your aunt's aunts, and your cousins? That's a little bit too much for me. I just can't take that. That's- and that becomes a notion that causes the relationship to follow. But if you took the flip side and say, Hey, help me understand this. And you'll see the social support systems and you'll see even how the Western culture, both people can benefit from both sides. I love the the mixing of cultures. It has its challenges if you're not intentional about it, though. That's it. So
0: last area I want to talk about uh, in the few minutes we have left.
1: Millennials.
0: It is a passion
1: of yours, Kingsley. Oh, yes, indeed.
0: And... I have to believe that millennials, by definition, having been brought up as adults in a technologically d- devised world, has an impact. Tell us, how, in your eyes, how millennial relationships are different than my old-fashioned relationships.
1: <laughs> I like that, how you put that, man. your old relationship. It's interesting because the definition of commitment for a millennial and uh, for the baby boomers and, and the older generation uh, has changed. Um, commitment for a different generation the older generation is you stick it through thick and thin. And we saw that up until the 1980s when the divorce rates started just spiking up, when all of these things were coming out. Commitment is approached differently from a millennial. A millennial says, I can stay as long as I want for as long as I want. I don't need you to lock me down and tie me down. I have the choice to get up and go. Millennials, both male and female, are equally now a professional. They're getting committed when they are older. In fact, stats are indicating that the divorce rate is lower with millennials. It's not necessarily because they're divorcing late, It's because, no, they're not getting married uh, as much. They are getting married when they're older. There is no one person who is a breadwinner. So the dynamics, so the idea and the definition of commitment changes. We have now this hookup culture that's happening. All these things are are happening in their dysfunctional and non-dysfunctional things. So at the base of everything, the definition of commitment, allegiance, loyalty has changed. That the way you vote, you probably voted the same way you voted for the longest. I have
0: to push back. I have voted (laughs) differently all over the place. And especially since I vote in two countries, I've gone Democratic and Republican or I haven't gone socialist in France. So so, so
1: I generally vote around. So which means you're a millennial at heart. Uh, millennials will change they don't like structured systems that are hierarchical and uh, so their loyalty and sense of commitment changes if there's a principle that's off they will switch so how they show up in relationships is governed by how uh, commitment is defined because we define it differently we approach it differently that understanding affects how we choose partners we have this term being tied down. I don't like being tied down. That comes from how we define commitment. I want to be free as a bird. It comes from h- how we define commitment. There has been a rise of our common law marriages. That's how we define commitment. There has been a decrease in marriages, in, in divorce rates, because commitment, getting old, getting married later, the generation before us would get married. In their 20s, 18, depending on what country you come from. Now, this is just a, a general statement. It's not mm-hmm. applicable to everyone. So, I think the base of everything, how millennials are different with relationships, is how they define commitment, loyalty. That's what changes how they do life and relationships. I got married at 31. You got married. You are a millennial at you see, heart.
0: <laughs> there, there's a word that you haven't said, but I feel is somehow implicit and all that. When you say, I get to choose, I want my freedom, is the notion of agency. Mm. And if I own 100% of my 20% or 100% of my 70%, the fact is there's a relationship between responsibility and agency. Mm-hmm. You take responsibility. It's, it's an onus. You need to face up to it, but once you feel like you are responsible, then it's a lib. It's a. I feel there's a great liberation that comes with that sense of responsibility.
1: It changes. It's it's like an it's a, like an in employee employer situation, when employees feel like they own the company, they are part of the company. Productivity changes if they feel like they're just passing through. Mm-hmm. Companies that do shares for their employees pieces here and there and all that stuff, the productivity of those individuals changes because they now are all in, their commitment, the agency and the commitment is married and it functions in a more fluid manner as opposed to, oh, I'm just passing through, I'll just while up time. It's just like that first job that you had when you were 18, 17, you just want to get that money so you can buy your... Uh, nintendo whatever your ipod yeah whatever the case may be you're just passing through so yes you're absolutely right you got to marry those two the agency and the and the and the commitment and the ownership it transforms how you do life and part of my principles in when i do relationship coaching is ownership own the problem don't let it define you, but own it. When you own it and say, okay, this is a problem, I own it. Then you can only address it because you feel like, ah, yeah, it's, it's not mine. Then it's not yours to deal with. It's just gonna follow you. And before you realize you will become the problem, and by then it's too late because wherever you go, your sense of self-worth is lost
0: it will own you. Yeah. Easily. Wow. It feels like we have only just started the conversation. <laughs> so I hate to cut it off, but time is uh, what it is. How can anyone track you down, uh, get you as a speaker to talk about this? Because you are you have a marvelous voice, first of all, and a great presence. and uh, Your topic is so relevant in so many different contexts for my audience, mostly business, but building relationships in business is a whole another wonderful category what's the best way to reach out to you and contact you kingsley
1: me you can go to my website relationshipfactor.org just send me information there connect with me there i'm willing to engage in businesses and how relationships can actually increase your productivity That's one area that I'm I'm passionate about, not only just in intimate relationships. On social media platforms, you can find me on Instagram. You can find me uh, on Twitter, uh, on Instagram, Relationship Factor. Twitter is the only place where you'll find it's Kingsley Moore. You'll find me there. And my book, The R Factor, you can get the book on my website or if you're on Amazon, you can get the book on Amazon. It's right on there. Just search up the R R Factor. Our factor or just type in my name Kingsley Moyo you'll get the book popping up and uh, yeah we can link up we can do more uh, speaking engagements open virtual in person yeah it's been a pleasure Kingsley thanks
0: so much for coming on the show giving me some pointers I still feel like I can learn a few things too
1: thank you Minter beautiful journey this journey I believe won't end here (laughs) that's right I agree with you too
2: I won't tell the lie challenge, I know soon we all die, I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger, to feel free, trust in my reason, and let me show you why.